hearts this day and for you to do your mighty work in us and that you plant and sow this word deep in us and weave it through us, Lord. Sustain us, encourage us, and, and equip us in it and through you, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So our passage for today is found in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. That's Acts chapter 4, and you can find that on page 1,696 in your pew Bibles. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, and that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Thus far the reading. Thank you. Well, brothers and sisters, our uh, passage this morning is is striking in in a number of ways, and one of the one of the first things that I think grabs us in it is just the the, the striking language that is used uh, from the get go. the The priests and the Sadducees they they were angry. They were greatly the text says greatly disturbed because the resurrection of the dead was being announced. In Jesus. And, and what is it that would make the Sadducees so upset, that would be so, so disturbing to them? Because um, we are just, right off the bat, it is pointed out to us that these people, the rulers and the authorities, are just irate by this message being proclaimed to the people. You see, the gospel message It struck their beliefs to the core. For the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. It was, but it was not only a core belief, the gospel message also struck their identity. For they had enjoyed and become comfortable with the status and power 
that they had as leaders of the temple. So really, their life work was being called into question, was being challenged in many ways. You see, these people, they were the primary um, cultural movers and shakers of their time. And sure, other groups like the Pharisees and the Zealots, they gained popularity and attention, but the Sadducees, they were holding everything together. They were the arbiters of temple conduct, the arbiters of Jewish identity. They were the arbiters of diplomacy with the Romans. And here are these uneducated and illiterate men from some backwater town up north upsetting the center of the nation by talking about someone they had killed nearly two months ago. This teaching was greatly offensive and it needed to be silenced. Jesus resurrected from the dead. Possible. Forgiveness of sins in his name. Ludicrous. Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, utterly disturbing. Infuriating, actually. This teaching was a direct assault on the very way in which their lives had been oriented. The heart of what Peter had said, he, Peter and John, they healed this crippled man at the temple, and then they, they were teaching all the people who had gathered around and witnessed this, and the heart of what he said was in chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, Repent then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you. Yes, Jesus. That is a claim that demands a, a worldview change, really. It demands a conversion. It demands some sort of response one way or another. In essence, it really is a call to return home. And the the audacity of the absoluteness of that claim greatly disturbs the ruling authorities. In, In its speaking, in the gospel messages speaking, other ways are challenged. Other authorities are challenged. And things become a little bit upset. And so the ball got rolling quickly to put these men on trial to remind them who really was running the show here in Jerusalem. The trouble is that Jesus is found to be disturbing. And disturbed sentiments are not just for the Sadducees. We've all seen, read, or or even experienced this as well. And it's in many ways becoming a very touchy issue in our society where the ruling authority is relativism. It's in our news, it's in our TV shows, in our songs, and in our movies. And when we hear it over and over and over again, it has, it has a way of, of dwelling in us and forming us, and it can seem quite convincing as the way to everlasting peace. So many people are encouraged and and build their lives towards this orientation. And, And so as Christians, that can be incredibly challenging for us. 
to speak about the particularity, the uniqueness of Jesus in and the resurrection in a relativistic society where it's okay for everyone to do what they want or to believe what they want. We are told actually to keep those things in the closets because they're not good for polite company. The scandal of Jesus, how Jesus disturbs, is that it is Jesus alone. A scandal of particularity that that would cut to the core of this relativism in our society. And this does not afflict us just as individuals. It is even exemplified in the pressure the church has faced in the past decades in trying to protect or buttress people from being disturbed. William Willimon, a wonderful named man, William Willimon and, and two other pastoral theologians in their book, Good News in Exile, they, they speak about the challenge they endured as they tried to make the gospel make sense on modernist and post-modernist terms. So here's what they discovered. They discovered in, in trying to do this responsibly and sensibly, that it is speaking the gospel into the modern and postmodern world, in trying to do this responsibly and sensibly, this was a simple demonstration we had submitted to the powers that be. We had given up the battle too soon. In bending over backwards to speak to the modern world, we fell in. In our dialogue with contemporary culture, the traffic moved in one direction. It was always contemporary culture rummaging around in the gospel, telling the gospel what it could and could not believe. This is a project in which we have lost faith. Not faith in the project, but lost faith. In bending over backwards to speak to the modern world, we fell in and continued to service the old world. How do we navigate these challenges? It, it seems that making Jesus fit culture ends up in a loss of faith. But speaking Jesus to culture will disturb. What do we do when Jesus is disturbing to those we love, to those we want to be in good relationship with? Those times when we are scandalized by the particularity or utter uniqueness of Jesus. Times when, in essence, we say, I don't know the man. What are we to do then? Ram Jesus down, down everyone's throat every chance we get? Uh, no, not really. Go back to a crusade mentality? No, I, I don't think so. But let's look back to Peter. 
for a moment. This scene from our passage, it, it really resonates with a gospel scene. Jesus' trial. Jesus' trial. Jesus before the ruling authorities. And I think this would have been heavy in the mind of Peter and John at this moment. Is this our end? Are we on our way to a death march just as our Lord was those months ago? And what amazes me in, in all this is, is the great reversal that between the two trials. See, where was Peter? Where was Peter as Jesus was being tried before this council? Recall that dark night. The Son of Man questioned, mocked, beaten. Where was Peter? He was courageous. He was the only disciple to follow Jesus there. All the others had fled. And and he hangs around the fire, maybe trying to listen in nervously, awaiting news of, of what would happen to Jesus. And then someone spots him. You're with him, aren't you? I don't know what you're talking about. Surely you are one of his disciples. I do not know the man. You must be. I have seen you with him. Curse it all. I do not know the man. And then Jesus makes eye contact with him. The anguish that overcame Peter that night. This was Peter's, that was Peter's last encounter before a council. That desolation of rejecting his friend, rejecting his teacher, rejecting his Lord. And now here he is, almost reliving the same scene. But this time, he is the one on trial. This time, he is not disavowing Jesus. I don't know the man. But the man is speaking through him. Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks and lays the name of Jesus Christ upon that council. You see, in this trial, by the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks of the particularity of Jesus Christ to this council. By the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks of the authority in the name of Jesus Christ. By the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks of the healing power that is Jesus Christ to give. By the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of the new temple being built, the new humanity. By the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks of no salvation through anyone else but Jesus Christ. By the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks of no other name with which humanity is to be saved but Jesus Christ. Peter, Peter, who had cried out and cursed, I do not know the man. By the Holy Spirit, Peter proclaims, I know the man. He is the one and only he is Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. There, there's no one like him. 
And that same power, that same love and conviction, that strength, that same trust runs through us all by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes we, we don't quite see it or we don't quite recognize it. Maybe we are more influenced by, by Hollywood than we realize. You know, maybe we, we just kind of look to the, to the sexy gifts, to the power gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we think little of, our, of ourselves, of, of our faith. Because we don't have tongues or, or prophecy or, or, the, or maybe we're even covetous of, of those things. But look at Romans 8. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him, by the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. You, me, crying out to God as Father is the work of the spirit in our lives. 1 Corinthians 12, no one, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. See the equipping work of the Spirit in your life. To cry out, Abba, Father, to cry out, Jesus is Lord, and, and rejoice in that gift. For that is the, the most precious gift we have been given. In this life, rejoice and be thankful for for we have been ushered and welcomed into relationship with the living God. There is no one like him. Carl F. Braden, a a leader in the ecumenical movement, I think he said uh, one time, I I think he was before uh, the U.S. Senate, and he said this, If salvation is the experience of illumination, then perhaps Buddha saves. If salvation is the experience of union with the cosmic all, then perhaps Hinduism saves. If salvation consists in being faithful to one's ancestors, then perhaps Shintoism saves. If salvation is being freed from the oppression of the bourgeoisie, then perhaps Marxism saves. If salvation is material well-being, then perhaps capitalism saves, the God of the West. If salvation means feeling good, then perhaps salvation is outside religion altogether and can be found in therapy and drugs. But if, Salvation means liberation from the powers of sin and evil and death. Then only Jesus saves. Jesus is the only one who makes that claim. There is no other name by which humanity is to be saved and that is as scandalous now as it was 2,000 years ago. But it is also as life-giving, as life-changing, and as life-transforming as it was 2,000 years ago. No one, no one else is like him. 
He, he is alive in a way we are not. He knows in a way we do not. He cares in a way we do not. He has joy we do not. No one else is like him. And by his resurrection, which is, is a pledge to us, a basis of our future hope, by his resurrection, a new interval of time has been created by one man rising in advance of the rest. We have hope because of what has happened to Jesus. You see, it is in the filling of the Spirit, the Spirit that he has sent, that he makes his aliveness to bear on us. His knowing to bear on us. His caring to bear on us. His joy to bear on us. No one else is like him. And by the filling of the Spirit, he is making us like him. You know, Peter was not going out on an intentional mission that day. He did not plan and prepare for this, raise money for this. For Peter, he was just going about another ordinary day. He's off with John to the temple to pray and, and then maybe, maybe work and some fishing after that. But then the Spirit put a cripple in his path. And then the Spirit called him to heal this man and then to teach the people who witnessed this and arrested and before council the next day, again the Spirit filled him with words to say. The Spirit is not only at work on our missional days. The Spirit is always at work and, and will surprise us in a whole host of ways. But one thing for sure, may all our days, may all our ordinariness be marked with that exclamation from Peter, I know the man. There's no one else like him. There is no other name by which to be saved. That incredible confidence and trust in our strong God, in the one and only God who gives us a heart that is glad and a soul that rejoices. Shall we pray? That is glad.